Anthony Cosia and Cut, produced and presented by Andromachus of Ocleus and Kemal by Khalil. In this episode, we discuss the Epon report with its author, Dr. Alexandra Novoselov. The report assesses the effectiveness of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus and the Office of the Special Advisor to the Secretary General on Cyprus. Welcome to Nicosia and Kat. Hello, Kemal. Hello, Andromahi. We are in the uh, heart of Old Town in Nicosia. Very beautiful afternoon, and we are very happy to have with us Dr. Alexandra Novoselov. Alexandra Novoselov is a consultant for the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and a research associate at the University of Paris. Hello, Alexandra. Welcome. Hi, Andromahi. Hi, Kemal. Hello. Um, nice to be here. Nice to have you with us. And we are here today on the occasion of uh, your report on assessing the effectiveness of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus and the Office of the Special Advisor to the Secretary General in Cyprus that was released a few months ago. Would you like to tell us a few things about uh, the project, the report in itself, and how it came about? Sure. So this report is part of what is called uh, the EPON research project, which stands for Effectiveness of Peace Operation Network. So it's a network of uh, researchers interested in, in peacekeeping in general, in peace operations. And uh, this uh, research project that is led by NUPI, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs in Oslo, started in 2018 and looks at each and every uh, UN, but not only UN, uh, EU or AU, uh, African Union uh, operations, uh, looking at, you know, the effectiveness of those operations. How do you evaluate over the years the effectiveness of this kind of operation? Is it uh, like a regular research or is it a one-time thing? Is it a result of an inquiry that people are curious or is it just a normal procedure? It's an idea that Cedric de Conning, which, who is one of the lead uh, researchers in Adnupi, had at one point and his, his team over there also. When, you know, in 2017, Trump, the Trump presidency, started to think about, you know, but missions like in Cyprus, those long-standing missions in Cyprus, and saying, well, what are they there for? What is their purpose? How are they useful? What is their effectiveness? I don't see any effectiveness in there. Why don't can't we close them? Why are we spending the American tax, taxpayers' money? You know, yes. yes, that was the rhetoric the, the back rhetoric, then, yes. And the peacekeeping research community realized that there's no except from some quantitative reports or articles on this issue, there's never been really a systematic assessment of the effectiveness of those operations. And that's how it started. Cedric and his team in NUPI contacted you know, the research community, and they were able to convince part of the, the Norwegian government to, to fund this project. But it's also really... And they convince also uh, some other institutions to join the project. So it's not only the, the Norwegian uh, government that is funding. It's, it's a common, it's a collective effort, so to speak. And we, we bring all our knowledge to look at the, this issue of effectiveness. 
because next time, you know, now Trump is is gone, but next time we have such a president, you know, asking question about those operations, even though if you look at the grand scale of things, you know, peacekeeping is just one month of war in Afghanistan at the peak of the NATO operation in Afghanistan. So it's pocket money at the international, you know, on the international scale. But even though I think that forced the research community to really go deeper into these uh, operations. And that research, as I said, that research project started in 2018. And we started with the big, big peacekeeping operations. So those uh, deployed in the Congo, in Mali, in Central Africa, in Darfur at the time. But I uh, did lead the study on MONUSCO in 2018-2019. But I've studied Cyprus for a long time now because I, I did a book on separation walls where I looked at the case of Cyprus. I have many friends in Cyprus. I really um, like the island. And I thought, you know, it would be also time to not only look at those big, big missions, but look at those older missions and, and see how we can assess the effectiveness of those older, smaller missions. And so that's how I suggested to, to Cedric that I could undertake that uh, study. And to, to change also a bit the focus, we decided that we would not, in this case, only look at what the peacekeeping uh, side of the UN presence would do, but also at the peacemaking side. And then we would look at this interaction. And that's, that is what makes this uh, study quite uh, special. In fact, well, I, I do not know about the other studies, but I have to say that I was very impressed and, and I found that it was... Uh, Special in your case of the report is the very thorough sort of uh, background that you give. I mean, it is very easy for someone who has no knowledge of the Cyprus problem to follow. But I was also very struck by the depth of your understanding of uh, of, of the Cypriot psyche, be it the Greek Cypriot or Turkish Cypriot. I mean, the way you are portraying the concerns of the sides and how these uh, make the, the work of Anfisip even more difficult, was very, very uh, spot on. Oh, and on this, I would like to discuss a bit the issue of the recognition that you mentioned in your report. And you mentioned that one of the, of the obstacles that the FCP is facing is this constant fear uh, by the Republic of Cyprus of recognition of the entity in the north. So how do you see this play out in the in the field. Thank you very much, Andromahi. Uh, I mean, we, I conducted, uh, you know, more than 70 interviews, uh, and I read so many articles on uh, on this issue. Indeed, this uh, this issue of uh, recognition, I saw it as as one of the greatest constraints on the work of the UN in general on the island. Um, I want to say, just before going into that, I want to say also that in this work of, of assessing the effectiveness, we are not assessing, uh, I mean, those, uh, those operations are not evolving in a bubble. So we are not just uh, assessing an operation that would be, you know, uh, without the environment and the constraints. So we are, we are really fully taking on board 
the, the international, the regional, the local environment, and all the constraints uh, that are put on those operations. Because I think that also explains some of the things that they are doing or not doing along, you know, uh, over the years and, and the activities that they are allowed to do or not. And as I said, you know, uh, this issue of, uh, of recognition um, is, is one of the, the greatest uh, constraint on, on the work of the UN. It's uh, James Kerr Lindsay that uh, first wrote this, this uh, very interesting and, and uh, um, yeah, report on in advocating for engaging without uh, recognition. I'm fully uh, on board with him on this. And, uh, you know, all the, the interviews we made, there was always this issue coming up. And I think, you know, the Greek Cypriots have to find a way to, to really um, change the way they, they interact with their neighbors in the north. So, so the, the, the Greek Cypriots have to find a way to engage in, in a more meaningful way with their uh, northern uh, neighbor because, because, you know, otherwise, how can you, how can you make peace, you know? And recognition, you know, international recognition cannot happen just like this. You know, you, it's a whole process. It's a whole process of international law. And it's not because you're talking with the, a neighbor that is not internationally recognized that by talking to him or her, you will recognize it de facto. This doesn't exist. In fact, this was one of the issues that a United Nations Secretary General mentioned in his uh, recent reports, the fear of recognition is uh, th that needs to be handled in a meaningful way without challenging the basic positions of the sides, because that would be something else. Having said that, however, coming back to the report, I mean, if I want to take one or two or three very basic findings, the most striking ones. I mean, how would you summarize them? What would be the, the most interesting or maybe not so very interesting, striking, important findings of the report? The first one is we, throughout the report, I put an emphasis on the fact that what the UN has been able to do in, on the island is a quiet conflict prevention. It has uh, prevented um, back in the 1960s a civil war from developing. And today it is um, uh, preventing further escalation from happening um, uh, when you have a number of incidents occurring uh, in the buffer zone. Do people know this, that they are quietly stopping many conflicts to grow? You know, I mean, I don't know if they, they're aware of it. I mean, prevention is one of the most difficult jobs in the world, you know. It's because you don't see. Prevention is things that is not, are not happening. And so in this island where, you know, people are rather living in a comfortable status quo, even though, I mean, we, again, we can discuss that. 
but in an environment where there hasn't, hasn't been any casualties for the past 30 years, they can easily forget all the work that is done by the UN in a very quiet mode because it, that happens in the buffer zone where, you know, the regular people, I mean, if you're not a farmer, if you're, you're not going there. But this is keeping the security situation at a very low level. I mean, it's, it's, it's keeping the peace, literally. Years ago, yes. I had a, a friend working at the UN, and I remember he told me that we feel that we are in front of a, a tennis ball throwing machine. And, you know, even if we get 99 of those balls with our racket, sometimes there is one ball that we miss and then that makes a whole big hustle between sides. And people don't realize that we actually covered that 99 or, 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 you know, hit that 99 of the balls and then get rid of the trouble. It's, it's kind of interesting to see it from the perspective of the local though as well, because as Alexandra has explained, because everything happens so quietly, let's say, people do not understand the vulnerable position and the precarious situation in which we are because they, we take the presence of Anfisip for granted and not only its presence, but also the results of its presence, which is this sort of quiet uh, situation. And I remember I was reading recently some comments on social media by people who were saying that, okay, the Turkish Cypriots suffered between 58 and 63, but from then on until 74, nothing serious or that serious happened. It was a totally, it was an analysis lacking in historical uh, facts, but it was interesting that nowhere in this equation, when this person was making this case, he did not mention in any way that, well, in 1964, the United Nations peacekeeping force was in fact created. So it is like we discuss the Cyprus problem without being able to pinpoint when Anfisib came to the island. And because we position Anfisib in the period that it suits us, let's say, for instance, most Greek Cypriots would not know that Amphisip was here 10 years before uh, the events of 1974. So... It is interesting to think of how this plays out in the local psyche as to how they uh, think of this peacekeeping force. And one more thing, I think it's also important to remember, if people ask, if people see this as, a, as an internal conflict between communities, then they would ask, why is there an international peacekeeping force is here generally? Because, I mean, that, that's the idea. The international peacekeeping forces are there to stop the escalation it, into an international area. So it actually shows that the potential of the Cyprus problem of escalating to a, to a regional conflict. It's not only a civil war between communities, it has the potential to grow. And this is actually something that we always forget. And it was one of the reasons why Anfisip came in the first place. So I mean, there are so many areas and regions in the world which are going through civil strife and civil war and that the international peacekeeping force is not there. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, the, the, the UN has been there to, to stabilize, to avoid uh, an escalation of this sort. In, in the interviews I, I conducted, it's, um, it, I found it funny, so to speak, uh, to see that, you know, even though we have this, this work, this very ground work on prevention, on preventing a conflict or uh, violence to occur, people have always uh, or have often made the link between the lack, the, the, the lack of progress in the negotiations with what they would consider a failure of peacekeeping. And there I, I said, sat down and I thought, why do they make this link? Because, uh, because the, uh, the peacekeeping mission as such, UNFCCIP, was never conceived to, to have any role in the, in the negotiation. It was conceived to keep things calm so that the negotiations can happen. And so I think we have to delink uh, these aspects of things. It's not because there's no progress on the solution for Cyprus that um, the UN presence in, in the island is, uh, is a failure. On the contrary, I think, it has made people forget it is there. And I think this mere fact is a success for the UN. That's, in fact, an interesting perspective because we are often very critical of the UN as to uh, how it is not visible enough because, of course, for us, and that's where the other issue comes uh, in the discussion when we go from peacekeeping to peacemaking. So while it is, you make a clear case about the success of UNFCCIP when it comes to peacekeeping from this perspective, can we say the same about peacemaking? Clearly, the peacemaking element um, has been failing. But again, uh, why? You know, what constraint? that element from, you know, being a success. And again, we have the will, the will, the, the issue of the will of the parties, you know, are the, the parties ready to make peace? And there we are in the report, I mean, if people read it, uh, we are coming with a, um, a number of, um, you know, kind of description of what has been the negotiating process, what have been the, the characteristic of the negotiating process, and saying, well, all these characteristics, namely, you know, Cypriot-owned, uh, UN-facilitated, top-down uh, leadership process, the search for a comprehensive settlement, the deep mistrust between the, leader, the, the leaders of the two sides, the open-ended kind of negotiations or the fact that the talks have always been held abroad, all these characteristics are a recipe for failure. And uh, so, so there's no wonder why the peacemaking hasn't been uh, effective. And, and just one uh, last point on this is the fact that uh, on the interaction between peacekeeping and peacemaking, it's also true that the, the peacekeeping element was so efficient that, you know, people lost any urgency of making peace, of finding a solution. So in a way, we could see, say also that 
The effectiveness of the peacekeeping element has been a trap for the peacemaking element. Self-defeating success. Yeah, and because they're making this link always, you know, with the negotiation. And I think we have to delink this because otherwise, you know, we'll, I mean, of course, the, the UN is there to be blamed and it's one of, of its roles. <laughs> uh, but, but we have to go beyond that. I also think we also need to acknowledge that uh, all the other parties that you just referred to also have a responsibility for reminding um, the Cypriots that, you know, this peace that you see that Amphisip has uh, succeeded in building, let's say, should not be taken for granted. So it, it shouldn't really be the job of the United Nations to be stressing this. It should be the job of the politicians of the country, of the civil society in the country, uh, and of those who have the uh, political power in their hands to actually bring about a change in the situation. So we clearly see a failure in that domain. But how about And I do not know if there is this perspective, but you will tell us if there is. How about peacemaking on a, on a grassroots level or, or, or on, on the level of the civil society? Does Amphisip have a role in this? So I would call that peace building. And, and clearly in, in the report, uh, we're saying that this is the missing element. Um, that, um, and, I, and in the report, I, I said that You know, we are at the moment of uh, some kind of a change or of a shift. You know, for, for a number of years, you know, the UN has worked on peacekeeping. So that has succeeded. You know. uh, for a number of years, the UN has tried to on and on and on to come up with some sort of solution for the island and work on this peacemaking element. And obviously this hasn't um, uh, succeeded. But if you go beyond that, you realize that the missing element is peace building. Because why peacemaking hasn't succeeded is because you know, the, um, there's no reconciliation process on the island. How can you want to make peace if you're not able to have had this process of reconciliation uh, with uh, your neighbor, with the, the community you are meant to be living with in the future. And uh, so that, that is an element, reconciliation, education. Those two things are the heart of, of uh, peace building. And the missing, these missing elements have been fueling some kind of nationalistic stance uh, on, on both sides, actually. And when you don't have, you know, if you don't cure enough, if you don't go enough at the, at the, at the core issues of what makes people, you know, fight each other, if you don't reconcile, then you will have, you know, the, the, the lack of proper peace Uh, will affect the society over the years. It will is be it, like a cancer. Yeah. On is, it, is it missing because the program is not designed that way or is it because maybe there are not enough funds or maybe, you know, the sides do not see them as, you know, they don't regard it as if it's their responsibility? I think a bit of all this, but 
primarily the the last things that uh, that you said. And in the in the report, we come up with like uh, I would call it the four T's. First, you know, I think you need more transparency in the process, in the processes. The negotiations have lacked inclusiveness, have lacked transparency. Uh, they've, you know, it's it's like, you know, tomorrow you have a solution that that would be the end of it, which is not true. Um, this uh, And so lack of transparency means also, uh, is the result also of a lack of a track to process, where you include all elements of the civil society, and not only the Nicosia bubble, uh, what people have been saying, uh, uh, talking about the Nicosia bubble, but all other parts. And of course, I don't say it's it's easy, but I but I think that's um, that's a way uh, forward. Then you have to have a transformative initiative, and that's linked to what I just said. You know, you have to change minds, and and reconciliation is part of that transformative uh, process. And last T is is trade. You know, you have plenty of opportunities to establish so number. A number of trade, trading, being trading partners, being, you know, economic opportunities that hasn't been seized because of this recognition problem. So it's it's a sort of a vicious circle. But if you break, and I, I think one of the answer, one of the breaking points in, in a way is this issue of, of the recognition. You know, you have to engage uh, with the your, your partner, and it's it's not because you engage with him or her that you will recognize him or her internationally legally, but it's a, a way to create what we called in the, in the report a dependency on peace uh, rather than a dependency on the comfortable conflict. You have to dare. You know, peace doesn't happen overnight. You have to work on it. It's like a marriage. You have to work on it to make it successful. So peace is, you know, is the objective. And some of the, uh, the way is this issue of recognition and the issue of reconciliation and the issue of education. I think these are the elements of possible success uh, on the island or a way to move forward because I think, I mean, my sense is when I, I came here uh, to, to finalize the report was really that people are fed up of the situation uh, also. You know, they, they see it as a, as, a, as a way of blocking some of the things that you want to achieve in life. And, and I think it's time to move forward and Peace building, I think, is the way to move forward. I, I liked a lot what you said about this need to create a dependency on peace. And if we could, you know, sort of spread this message or everything you say, we, we listen to you and we are in agreement and it becomes, and we often have this discussion with Kemal because at times when you are involved in the Cypriot civil society, especially when it comes to the Cyprus problem, you feel like Cyprus is the land of the irrational because everything that you say makes so much sense. And yet we have the situation in which time after time our political leaders are simply lacking the political will to put forward everything that you say because it is very easy to be putting the United Nations in a corner and 
to be attacking them or accusing them for what they do not do. But as you mentioned in the report, I'm sure that the UN's perspective is also that they cannot force something on the locals. It has to come from the locals. And sadly, if we look at the political leadership, at the political leadership on the island with minor exceptions, not minor because Mr. Akinji is not a minor figure, but I, I would say minor in the grand scheme of things, we are investing on hatred, hostility, and the perpetuation of this situation rather than on this dependency on peace. And for me, that's a very important takeaway. And thank you, Alexandra Keman. Yes, just one um, a question or maybe final comment before we conclude. What do you see for the future of the peacekeeping force in Cyprus? I mean, We know that there are challenges. We know that some people think that, you know, they've been here for a very long time, so they created a comfort zone. So maybe you don't know the answer, but what are the feedback that you've been getting regarding this question? Well, you know, the peacekeep force will remain as long as the Security Council decides to, to have it on the island and as long as... There's no solution because, you know, imagine that tomorrow, you know, the peacekeeping force leaves. We don't know what Uh, will happen. Wait, so a single veto in the Security Council means that the unfeasible will go, right? Like, for example, if now that there is this Russian-Ukrainian crisis and then out of blue, maybe one of the Security Council members decided that, you know, they are not going to, you know, they just say no, just one time and they will go. Yes, because and the, people forget that sometimes. Because the mandate is renewed uh, every every six. every six months, or uh, so. Yes. But I also think that because we are at a time in which we see everything changing around us, I believe that a fundamental change in the way the United Nations is run, is structured, is organized is not hard to imagine at this stage. Um, I I believe that after everything is over with Ukraine, we will see a discussion about the international order, the international community, how decisions are taken, because in the new (laughs) setting, I am sure Russia's role in the Security Council or the importance of the Security Council with Russia within it, I am sure we're going to start seeing a lot of discussions on these issues. And uh, I mean, I think we're already seeing uh, discussions on that. But I, but you know, Russia is a permanent member of the the council, and unless you change the charter, you cannot change that fact. So, um, and I, I, you know, Russia, as you know, has a lot of interest on the island and has been one of the best supporter of keeping the mission um, on the island. So I, I mean, I may be wrong, but but I don't see it vetoing, uh, you know, and the the renewal uh, when when the renewal comes. Um, I think you know what. Also, the the message uh, in the in the report, I quote uh, Jean Monnet, who was the founder of the EU, and he was saying, you know. To solve intractable problems, it is sometimes necessary to change the context. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I think, you know, changing the context through engaging without recognizing, I think that would be a first step towards changing the, the, the context and could start on a new 
foot again. Is your report publicly available? So my, uh, so the report is uh, publicly available. Thank you, Kemal, for <laughs> Thank asking. You, Kemal. <laughs> <laughs> we all looked at Kemal in gratitude for putting some order. <laughs> um, the Epon Network has a, has a website. Uh, it's effective peaceops.net we are going to put it under our um, podcast anyway as a link yes but it's good to remind and so you you can you can download there in uh, multiple uh, versions and you can uh, and I wanted to mention also the uh, the the report I just finished that was published both by the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung office in Cyprus uh, with the Epon network about looking at unidimensional missions. So those those small missions that were created during the Cold War, uh, peacekeeping missions, and it was a way to, to look at those missions was also a way to put the, the mission of, in Cyprus into perspective, saying, well, you know, it's not only in Cyprus that you have those long-standing missions, you know, uh, where that are there for decades and that's where you know they're trying to stabilize and to 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 keep the peace but where uh, the political settlement the peace settlement is so far out of reach and so i wrote this report to you know to uh, shed light on this uh, type of operations that are half of the peacekeeping missions that are have been deployed uh, to that are deployed today in the world um, so please also look at the website of the FES office in uh, in Cyprus. Um, we hear a lot about United Nations uh, not doing anything occasionally in our programs. We um, have been critical as well. And, you know, there are all those urban legends that they're, you know, having their holidays. You know, they've been do- not doing anything here for, for ages. I think it will be very unfair to them what, yes. what have they have been doing here on this island. And I think it is very important that you mentioned um, you, you worked on that with, with that report. And, of course, um, they, they are operating in a very difficult environment yes. because the sides do not even recognize each other. The definition of the crisis, the definition of the problem is even different. But um, thank you very much for uh, this report and thank you very much for being with us and then explaining that. And I'm hoping that we'll continue the discussion in um, in coming programs in other uh, mediums as well. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thank you so much, uh, Kemal and Andromai. It's always a pleasure to meet you both and to be on the island um you know, each time. And have a coffee in the heart of um, town with a background music and do the podcast recording. (laughs) Special moment. (laughs) In a nice cafe. Thank you. Thank you. The first trilingual podcast station of Cyprus. Island Talks. Open, diverse, free.